Hello, and thanks for downloading and recording. This is that Nerd Dad podcast. I am that Nerd Dad, Joe Williamson. How are you? Oh, we got a fun one today. Uh, political commentator. That's what I'm going to call him. I don't know what his official title is. Journalist. Uh, David Mosscrop is here. And we're talking Canadian politics, but don't leave. <laughs> I know people hear Canadian politics and they might tune out, but uh, this is a fun chat um, that talks about how screwed we are as a country and its current political environment. Now, if that doesn't get you, nothing will. So stick around for that chat. I'll tag you at the end. All right, hang on. Let's talk here. guest this week is someone I've been very excited to talk to for a while. We've been playing a bit of a phone tag, not really phone tag, email tag. Is that a thing? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, David Mosscrop is here. Thank you, David. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, I have been a big fan of yours for a while. Um, I think your Substack is one of the few must reads um, out there, especially in the Canadian political uh, landscape, because it is educational. There is a, a, a sousan of snarkiness, which I appreciate, um, but also level-headedness. So I, I'm greatly excited to be talking to you because politics is one of those things I find fascinating, but I don't think the Canadian coverage is as exciting or as entertaining as our U.S. counterparts. For better or for worse sometimes, right? I mean, I, the... There's, there's something about the, this isn't entirely accurate, but the sort of staid Canadian tame uh, politics that, that we used to think about, which even in past decades was a bit of a caricature and, and is even more so now. But compared to the United States, I mean, the, the bar is set so much higher because that that is just beyond wacky, right? So you know, Canadian politics is more interesting, more dynamic, more scandalous, uh, sometimes more absurd than people might think. But when you compare it to the United States, it doesn't even seem to register because the U.S. is so unbelievably over the top insane. Uh, so sometimes that gets lost. And there are days where I think the only way I can keep doing this job is to go full on Hunter S. Thompson Gonzo. Uh, and there are other days where I think, no, no, I need to, I need to center myself, calm down, do what I do, and keep pressing on. And that's the internal battle I face. And I think that's sometimes the internal battle a lot of people in media face. I think it's fair, especially in uh, the political landscape, because if you want clicks, if you want eyeballs, if you want content to go viral, the more you play to the wings the more likely it is you're going to be seen. You could probably attract an audience and shit. You could ride that wave for a few years, maybe for the rest of a career, because some people have built their careers on it. The center, the centrist journalism is not sexy, but it's so badly needed. And I think that when I, when I mentioned the idea of you being snarky, I, I, I think of you as like an, a Canadian Chris Kaliza, who I'm a big fan of from the US. Um, he has lots of snark in his political commentary, very well educated, a whole nine yards. And I just see kind of a lateral between the two of you. Um, I think he leans a little bit more uh, one way. I think you are far more centrist in that regard. Well, I'm far more left. 
Oh, I visual. Well, here's the thing. Here's the trick. Maybe it's the writing. Maybe it's the way it comes across. It, it, that's it. I, I'm I'm viciously leftist, and certainly among the mainstream crowd, and in many ways uh, among the, the the more radical leftists, and have been for a long time. But I don't dress myself in that uh, politics in those ideological commitments every day for every single thing I do because I find that it's often counterproductive, distracting, and undermines other important messages. And I'm also a leftist who is somewhat heretical uh, on several fronts. Uh, my commitment to Canadian parliamentary institutions, my commitment to things like the Senate, I happen to like the Senate, there's all these things that are for a, the left heretical, which is fine, but I still believe in them. Uh, so it, it's a little bit complicated, but the fact is I'm very much devoted to my politics in, in very particular ways, but I don't mobilize them all the time. Uh, I'm a little bit more strategic, a little bit more reserved about that. And some people will respect that approach and some people don't. But the plain fact is I would lose my goddamn mind if I had to suit up in my Lenin costume every morning, uh, that I got up and walked out the door, I would go crazy. And when I talked earlier about Hunter S. Thompson, I didn't even mean that tactically as a uh, as, as a financial endeavor or a career brand building endeavor, but more as a survi psychological survival mechanism that you almost have to become this participant journalist who embraces and reflects the absurdity because otherwise your brain will melt inside your head and leak out your ears. And uh, that's part of the reason I, I don't get up all day and, and go full on with my politics uh, because I would go crazy and and I there are other things to do and that's why the Substack reflects that in many cases. I love how your uh, your opinion is. I love Canadian politics. I love it to death. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life is talk about it. But honestly, it's also mind numbing and you could lose your mind if you go full into it. It's it's a paradox, my friend. <laughs> oh, I hate it. I mean, I I hate it. Uh, a lot of the time I absolutely despise it. And, and there are other moments when I don't despise it. And it's a bit manic. And I consider leaving all the time. I really do. Uh, I think I would always carry some of it with me, but I think about leaving. And I, then you go on to LinkedIn. And today LinkedIn told me that one of the jobs I should apply for is a host at the Fit for Less in London. And I think, Maybe I'm where I'm meant to be because um, I don't think I would be a good front desk <laughs> operator at Fit for Less in London. But but uh, it 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 is maddening in its own way, especially if you're on digital and social media because that's a space that is inherently maddening. And and then there are other times when it's not. And the other day I was reading a book by John Ibbotson about John Diefenbaker and Lester Pearson and the the way those two built the country in the 50s and 60s and the way they were at each other's throats throughout the process. And in that moment, I thought, this is what I like about this job. You get to dig deep into a subject, get to know the country, get to know the history uh, away from the sniping and the moment to moment battles on social media, and then reflect on that in the sort of quiet, peaceful nature, uh, quiet, peaceful uh, protection of your own home. And then you log on and it's Thunderdome, right? And so uh, 
that's where I get this divide between what I love and what I hate. And yet you can't exist right now as a journalist, certainly not as a columnist, if you're not in the thrust and parry of the day-to-day online social media nonsense. You're super active on Twitter. Yeah, I know. It's a problem. Is it like, I mean, Twitter is what it is now. It's Thunderdome. It's, it's crazy. Um, I agree. I think in order to get traction, in order to understand what, people and or bots are saying you have to be involved in that sort of environment is it tiresome truly is it tiresome because i I mean i don't think i've been followed by a real person in weeks it's only women who are eligible and available in my neighborhood (laughs) yeah yeah the the porn bots have become a bit much uh it's it's become worse but even a couple of years ago, it wasn't great. And there is no safe space, though. I remember writing about the the convoy when it was a convoy before it became an occupation. And I was writing the Washington Post, and I wrote a piece saying that the convoy is very clearly a sort of toxic reactionary politics that we need to meet head on. And I spent weeks uh, being threatened, being harassed, being insulted on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, even LinkedIn. By the time the who attacks the on LinkedIn lunatics find you on LinkedIn, you know that you've really, really struck a nerve. But the yeah, email as well. So the rise of that that hatred, that abuse. I remember writing to my editor and saying, "Look, uh, I'm not sure it's worth grinding your teeth into dust when you don't have dental insurance to do this job." And I almost quit. And a couple of places talked me into staying by appealing to my sense of duty, which is to say they offered me more money. Uh, but I almost quit then. And still now I log in, I do my thing. I try, you, you cannot say a word these days without someone going, well, actually, or debate me, bro. And I think, well, that's not really a place I want to be anymore. That's not productive. That's not interesting. And so all the bullshit comes to the surface, all of the productive, nice, educational, uh, sometimes very affirming stuff, that gets buried. So you're constantly exposed to the negativity. You very, very rarely see the positivity. And that sort of induces one to want to leave because it's so nasty. And then every so often people say nice things to you and they think, well, that might help me get through couple more days and then you log on and then down you go again but the the social media space has become so toxic and addictive and we know this right we know it's designed in a very particular way to keep you logging in to keep you chasing that high so that you can get glued to the uh, uh, the outlet the platform and so you can generate advertising and other revenues for the owners and they're very very good at designing these things but it's bad for our mental health it's even bad for our physical health because it keeps us on our ass and ramps up our stress and yet we're stuck doing it um, it's uh, it's a classic addiction right it's it's a continued use despite negative consequences when it comes to a solution to the political stalemate we're in right now when i say stalemate i mean it's left versus right, red versus blue. You are a pick a side and dig in your heels for the rest of your fucking life. What do we do? Because it seems like somewhere in the early 2000s, we lost that. Because I can remember Stephen Colbert talking about truthiness. And to me, 
truthiness was the beginning of the end. Because as soon as facts and truth no longer became relevant or up for debate, oh, it was a slippery slope to Trump. And 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 it's off the rails now completely. How is it possible to put that genie back in the bottle? Or is this it now? So in the 1950s, 56, something like that, the political, the United States Political Science Association, the whatever they call it. I used to know these things when I was a semi-academic, and these days I, I get to forget. Um, APSA, the American Political Science Association, came out and said, we have a crisis in this country. We're not polarized enough. This is in the 50s. And the argument was, well, Democrats are liberals and Republicans are liberals. Everyone's a liberal. There's no ideological diversity. We need to be more polarized. And a group of people on the right, William F. Buckley, Barry Goldwater, some folks like that, decided to make good on that. And throughout the 1960s, 70s, 80s, to the Reagan administration and beyond, uh, Newt Gingrich, they decided to polarize. So Republicans became conservatives, liberals became Democrats. And now there are two forms of polarization. There's ideological polarization. That's where you get that left-right divide. We have different conceptions of the world and how it should be, and we disagree, and so we're on different sides. And then there's what's called affective with an A, polarization, which is the visceral, emotional, uh, identity-based polarization, uh, which separates you from other people based on that gut sense of uh, my side, right or wrong, I'm attached to them deeply, uh, and I'm going to fight you no matter what, and we'll never agree, uh, even if we would agree otherwise. And uh, the, the effective polarization has been ramped up so intensely and has become so toxic and is now further boosted by incentives of the market, by incentives of the online uh, environment, and by political incentives of parties who want their people to be their people, right or wrong, no matter what, that it's become very, very difficult uh, while sort of extremist, effectively polarized folks dominate spaces, even for those who would typically be a little bit more reasonable or would agree, even if they disagree on ideology on some things, and who would be willing to sit down and have conversations to actually engage because the space has become so unwelcoming and so toxic. I cannot imagine a world in which we reverse that anytime soon. I don't know how it would happen. I don't know how you change the institutional and structural incentives of the market or of political parties or of uh, of the internet. There are lots of books who try to find ways. You know, there's, they're over my shoulder over here. Everyone has a pet theory. Uh, it's it's better in some places than others. You know, like it's better in a parliamentary system than a you know presidential system. It's better when you don't have to register as one kind of voter like you do in the U.S. You register as a Democrat. You register as a Republican. In Canada, you don't. You're just registered and you show up. But the fact is, it's it's gaining ground here too. That's the it's the zeitgeist, and I think it's going to be a long, hard time before we fix that, if we ever fix it. I I, I am of the belief that much like any sort of lack of a better term, cancer on society, education plays a role in, in in solving it. Whether it be LGBTQ rights currently, and that kind of being a, a, a forefront, or something like slavery, education 
starts to solve a lot of these problems as long as we can educate people in the right manner. So that's why I'm of the belief that I almost think that political landscape needs to be taught sooner and earlier to children so that they are better equipped and better armed when they come into high school, a little older, and they can start to vote. And hopefully they haven't been necessarily um, brainwashed. And I hate that saying, but brainwashed by their parents into whatever their current belief system is. As it's taught right now, and I don't know if you're an expert on this, I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Do you think we talk about politics enough in school? Well, it depends. Um, I mean, we do talk about politics in school. Uh, I'm part of a, a, a consulting process right now on the uh, political science uh, curriculum in, in a province in this country. Uh, it's a great looking curriculum. Uh, it does exist. This is, this is high school level. And, but it's up to individual provinces to set their own educational curricula. And then, of course, for individual school districts have their own leeway here and there. Uh, so it depends. Uh, I obviously think we should be talking about this from a young age, both in the home and outside of the home. Uh, we should be building some basic background knowledge of what the institutions are, how they work, and so on. But also skills about how to navigate politics. Because... As you, you're right, a big part of this is education, but it's the capacity building to be able to tell truth from lies, to be able to think through uh, propositions, policies, positions, and so on, to make up your own mind about where you stand or don't stand ideologically and so forth. I started thinking about that. I remember my first political moment very well. I was in grade school. It was in 1995. I would have been 11. And the Quebec referendum on separation was happening. And my teacher, who was a, a French speaker first, I was in French immersion. I don't know if she was Quebecois or Franco-Ontarian, but she was French, uh, had a map on the wall of the country. And she was taking down the country province by province. It was pinned up to a board. And she went and unpinned Quebec and removed it. And I said, well, you would. <laughs> I... I, I didn't know if she was a sovereigntist or a federalist or even cared. I just had this notion of like, oh, Quebec wants to separate. The French teacher's taking Quebec off the map. That's funny and political. And that was my first real political memory. And uh, I sort of chased, I've been chasing that high ever since. I was, I was thrown out of class for it, but I've been, it, I've been chasing that high ever since. Uh, some people sort of naturally gravitate towards this and others don't, but we should have a basic knowledge. But it's a huge site of contestation because there's no neutral way to teach politics. There's just, it can't be done. And this is why we see particularly conservatives these days, uh, activists uh, targeting school boards and targeting schools and the curriculum because they want their version of the world to be taught. And there's no neutral way to teach it. And so it's a huge site of contestation. And so I agree with you, but it's going to be a hell of a battle to decide who teaches whom, how, about what, and in what way. And that itself is a big political question. So there's my point being, there's no escaping that this is a fundamental political question that's going to be a site of, of struggle amongst people who disagree. 
this has been we're fucked with David Moscrop. Yeah, it's funny because I, you know, I wrote my my book somewhere above my. I, I'm bad at. I'm getting better at this. Like it's okay. I got I got I got a I got a little better. high def image. I want to say it's on there. There you go. Yeah, Too dumb for democracy. Now available as an audio book, which is quite what? nice. Read read by me, no less. But no, um, got your soothing voice reading mm, to me. Yeah, yeah, it's very nice. I mean, it was like it was it. a lot of fun to do, but it's four years later or whatever it is. We've, yep five years i think in march and the i like to joke you're never going to go broke betting against democracy you know like that's the it's a pretty good system it's a good yeah well and in and, and a, and a total mess and so you know short democracy the book has become increasingly relevant and I do make some suggestions about things people can do to do better, make better political decisions to process the political world better, and how institutionally we can do better. But it's hard to get uptake uh, for that amongst the institutions and amongst individuals because we're just trying to live our lives. And so individually, it's like we got other things to do. And politically, at the institutional level, they don't want... Uh, people to be better at politics politicians say they do right like they say they want people to vote they want their supporters to vote they could care less about their non-supporters they have scarce resources and they deploy them in in support of the voters who are going to turn out for them not the ones who aren't and they have uh, control over the agenda control over the institutions and they are very very hesitant to uh, share that with day-to-day -day people at least in productive ways, um, if it helps, you know. Well, I mean, they don't bash want us, the other folks. Then they they like don't it. want us to look behind the curtain and see that Oz is just lying to us. Lying to us at is in some cases the the best case scenario, yeah. right? I mean, if we know Hanlon's law that you should not attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence or stupidity, um, then you know that it, it tends to be things like people are incompetent, they're ignorant, they're tired. Uh, some of it is lying, but a lot of it is just people being uh, unable to do their job competently, especially as they sort of approach the eight or nine year mark of being in government. Start Who, are you talking about? Who are you talking about, yeah. David? Well, and it's funny because, I mean, uh, right now, looking across the country, it's a, it's a pretty cynical, sad, discouraging uh, place. The federal liberals, I wrote recently, are aging like fruit flies at this point. The Doug Ford's government in Ontario is utterly corrupt and cynical and skeezy and uh, under police investigation, which is, you know, never a great sign for a government. Danielle Smith's government in Alberta is just totally off the rails. Um in, in on the east coast there's some really sketchy governments who are doing some sketchy things saskatchewan ditto uh there's some hope in in manitoba now but wait to see bc seems to be the best governed province in the in the country uh kudos to the ndp for that uh, although they're not quite living up to the ndp ideals of their more ardent supporters uh francois legault in quebec is starting to come down to earth after years of, of seeming to be untouchable and the federation is, feels like it's being pulled apart by provinces and the federal government who are squabbling and Alberta wants his own pension plan and uh, Quebec always wants to go their own way. Uh, Scott Moe's not going to collect the 
the carbon price levy from from individuals. Uh, other provinces are demanding exemptions from the carbon price now because they got it for home heating, which mostly applies to Atlantic Canada. It's starting to look like the federation's in pretty rough shape, and that's that's pretty frightening. Uh, I don't know how we navigate this, and but and I'll is close it, on this. Frightening we, because of who's waiting in the wings to potentially replace the current leader. Because it, if federally, if, if it yeah. boils down to two, Trudeau and uh, PP, uh, I know people are tired of Trudeau. PP scares me for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm not a fan, <laughs> and not the least of which is to your point. I get that a lot of people point Trudeau as. Oh, he was a drama teacher. Oh, yeah. Who cares? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. What was PP's resume? What was Pierre Polyev's resume? It's. He's a lifer. It's. What are, we, what lifer. are, we, what are we working with here, right? Um, and oh, my God. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm reading this. I was reading this Ibbotson book. I was writing a review of it for the Globe Mail. And uh, we shouldn't look at any historical era through rose colored lenses and, and, you know, say, well, you know, like the 1950s and the 1960s were the halcyon days of, you know, they were full of scandal. They were highly exclusionary. They were in many ways, belligerent races. Yeah. I mean, sexist, <laughs> like issues. Uh, the, you know, deeply corrupt in some cases and so on. There was no, perfect age of Canadian politics. The most corrupt politician in Canada's history to this day remains its first prime minister. Uh, so, you know, the, the mob was involved in liberal politics uh, in Quebec uh, and, and, you know, that remained a problem for a long time. Sketchy <laughs> Quebec liberal politics continued for a very long time. We know, we all know the sponsorship scandal, but if you look at the quality of leaders in the 50s and 60s for a period of time at least yeah, hell through to the 80s at least you had at one point tommy douglas uh pierre trudeau and robert stanfield and it's hard to pick a loser or a, a loser there right you could sort of say well any three one of the three of them you would be in pretty good shape you had ed broadband you had david lewis previously you had Pearson and even Diefenbaker, despite himself, was, you know, remade large parts of this country and, and was is quite a significant figure in Canadian history. And now you look and say, okay, well, we've got Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh, and Pierre Polyev, and it sort of seems like we've moved from uh, the Bay to Dollarama, you know? Yeah, it's, Although, it's strange. I, I don't know why the bay came to mind. As I guess that's super high end clothing retail. Very high. It, bay. It, the bay is actually very nice if you can find someone to check you out at the cash register, which <laughs> you can't. Um, but you get my point. I mean, I, yeah. so there seems to have been a sort of structural decline in the quality of leader in many ways. Um, and, and I think there's also been a decline in a lot of uh, some of the parliamentary work. And there, there's bigger problems than just the leaders. Uh, there's you know ministers who've been disempowered, ministers who who no longer really respect ministerial responsibility. We have become fairly bad at drafting laws, despite having big buildings and very smart people within them whose job it is to do this. But we draft these laws which 
are often not not constitutional. They aren't fully fleshed out, and they say, "Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out later after we've passed the bill. We'll figure it out through regulation." And then the regulations are a mess, and we farmed that out, and the the drafting process is broken, and it just seems that. You know, control over the whole thing has has concentrated in the leader's office, has been taken away from parliamentarians. Uh, that seems to me very inconsistent with a healthy democracy and, and contributes to a lot of cynicism. And I think the country is in many ways fundamentally sick. And then you end up with an electoral system that says to you, you can have Justin Trudeau, uh, who for many good reasons is not liked, or you can have someone way worse, who is in a couple of years going to himself be deeply disliked, and in the meantime is going to do a lot of damage. And there's no good choice there. And people say, well, what the hell? This isn't, this is, yeah. Do you ever watch South Park? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the South Park election episode, the, one of the early seasons, right? You, It's a, a douche and a turd sandwich. Yep. And um, they captured, it's funny, like this stupid cartoon captured the frustration of electorates who didn't like the two options and wanted something different and better, but were stuck within these systems that produced these mere two options. And I think people are, are pretty frustrated with that, rightfully so. I, and I think because of the, the, the age of branding has become so prevalent that I don't see us, I hate, I, this has turned into just the, the most negative, like doom and gloom situation. Know, but, like, but it's not, I also don't see it getting away from there. You know, Trudeau is the brand. Pierre Polyev is the brand. Jack Meeson is the brand. They are the face of the organization. And until their likability factor, which is probably something that they track, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it goes up, we're not going to find that person because you need someone to be able to steal, uh, steal votes from the other colors. And right now, nobody's stealing votes from one another. The current situation is such that people are entrenched in their color. And no one's really stealing votes from one another. Well, so there, there is, yeah, there, there are diehard partisans who aren't changing their mind no matter what. The, the, there are dyed-in-the-wool partisans. There are folks who aren't partisan and, and who switch. The switchers are very valuable. And then the question becomes, okay, well, then who mobilizes whom? So there's a question of loyalty. Then there's, uh, there's a question of changing minds. And there's questions of actually getting people to turn out. And we have seen, obviously, people shift away from the liberals to the conservatives. There has been some, and some of those are from the liberals, and some of them are from the NDP even. There are orange and blue switchers. Uh, some of them will be greens, and so on and so forth. Some of them will be block supporters, whatever. Some of them will be PC, PPC supporters who've gone from the far right and, and, and are attracted to Polly Evan have come back. And so there is some movement going along there. But the, I'm glad you brought up the likability question because um, the, the most liked leader in the country every, almost every time is Jagmeet Singh. And that's not going to translate to votes. It's very easy to like. That's, that's an old NDP thing where people love the NDP leader because they don't really have to deal with them <laughs> as the prime minister, right? They don't have to deal with them as, as the head of a government. So it's very easy to like someone like that. Um, because you're not playing with live ammunition, right? It's like it's like it's Nerf ball. Uh, but you know, the people right now are very negative on both Trudeau and Polyev. So you've got a situation where Polyev has a very clear and established, and in some in some cases, growing lead, but nobody likes him. <laughs> 
and they he don't like Justin Trudeau either. And and I so you know this is part of the reason I think why you get turnout in the '60s and get governments. Look, I mean, I think the electoral system is uh, legitimate. I think it's perfectly constitutional. I, I'm not saying governments aren't legitimate; they are. But you get 34% of voters, uh, only 65% of whom turned out, voting for a government, which means that often you get a government returned with 20% of the vote, where one in five voters, eligible voters, have expressly come out and said, I want this local candidate who belongs to this party, and by inference, I want, uh, or by implication, I want this party to govern, which is sort of how we actually do it. Uh, that was true of Doug Ford in Ontario, it's true of Justin Trudeau, and it will be true of Pierre Polyev. So you've got one in five voters who expressly say, this is my person, this is my party, this is who I want. And of that one in five, presumably a significant number are holding their noses to do it, right? So like how many people are actually turning out to the ballot box and saying, I really want this because it's good and I like it? Like 10% maybe? 15? There's a lot of strategic voting. I just don't yeah. want. Yeah. X. Or I hate this other person. Yeah. Right? And, and I'm, you know, or I'm worried about this other person and I don't, so I don't want to, I don't want to waste my ballot. So I'm not going to vote NDP in this riding because, you know, even though we're really bad often at predicting exactly who's up and who's down and coordinating that strategic vote. So often strategic voting doesn't even work. But it's awfully uh, wretched. It's an awfully wretched situation to be in, right? So the vast majority of voters, and so no wonder people don't like politics. They don't like politicians. They're tuned out. They see no vision for the country. They see no hope for the country. They feel like they've been abandoned, and they want nothing to do with politics. They just, you know, might hold their nose and go vote, and then they go back to their day jobs. They go back to the video games. They go back to the streaming. Which, I mean, my God, it's my job to be engaged in this stuff, and I feel like that day to day, right? I'd much rather be. I'm listening to a great audio book about video games right now. All your bases are belong to us, a uh, history of video games. And I, and I go to the gym and I put my audio book on and I listen to it. I'm like, this is very nice. <laughs> is it a fit for less in London, Ontario? You know what's fine? No, it's not. <laughs> but there is, but there is a fit for less. I I know I joined a I joined a good life down the road. But a friend of mine said to me, uh, there's a fit for less just a couple hundred meters further down. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if they hire me, I'll, I'll get that staff discount. Okay, uh, David, I'm going to get you out of here because I, 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 but I got two ideas for you. Sure. And I, I think I think they're keepers. Okay. Uh, one is a sequel to your book, uh, which may or may or not. Too dumber. Too dumber. Too dumber. God damn it! You beat me to the punchline. I've heard that one before. <laughs> I don't care. I was going to do it. It was going to be original to me, David. Yeah. All right. Like the DC and what was the other universe. one was uh, you just said hold your nose and vote. I think that would be a. Or plug your nose in book. That's not bad either. There's a speaking of books. There's a book somewhere above my sh shoulder, maybe perhaps below my shoulder here, called okay. "Against Elections" by a guy named Von Raybrook. And his argument is like, we don't need elections. We would be better off with the random selection of uh -huh. people. And uh, I, there are days when I want to write another book, and I get up and I sort of start it and I map it out. And there's days where I get up and think, like, no, I want to write a novel. I drafted a novel. I wasn't happy with it, so I put it in a drawer. But I'm like, I want to get back and write a novel. Um, so there, there might be something in the works. But then there are days where I think, 
eh, maybe I'll just go get a normal person job and <laughs> enjoy my life, enjoy my gym time and my video game book Work and my front desk. At yeah, the dog. yeah, exactly. There's something nice. To, I, I'll close on this one. I was joking the other day. I used to work at a tire shop when I was in high school. And there are days I get up and am very nostalgic for scrubbing shit off of implements. You know, it was like a farmer comes in and needs, um, back then you sometimes plugged a tire, uh, like a plug in a tire or a patch in a tire, or you need to change a tire. Someone comes in, you got to rotate their tires. I'm like, ah, that's something that's real. Someone's got a problem. They come in, you fix it. You get to move around. You get to leave your work at work. Pretty nostalgic for that, right? And so uh, I, I say that by way of saying that I understand how people feel about politics because I even feel about that despite it being my passion and my life and my job. Uh, so it's it's very, very difficult. But then moments like this get to, you know, leaven it a little bit. Were you saying this was enjoyable? Yeah, in, in the sort of way that like rolling out your IT band is yes. enjoyable. Nailed it. Thanks, David. My pleasure. <laughs> Uh, oh, thank you, David Moscrop, for what turned out to be a great conversation. Um, I love it when a conversation like that happens. Because with someone like David, who I've been a fan of for a while, love his writing, I kind of get excited. And I worry, I worry that what if this conversation is a letdown? <laughs> like, what if I start recording and I'm like, hmm. This one's not going anywhere. Or I start struggling to come up with questions on the fly because I'm either tuned out or I realize it's not going well. It used to happen when I would do stand-up. I would do a joke that I thought was going to kill. And you do it, and then it bombs or it misses. And you're like, oh, I forgot everything I'm about to say. It happens sometimes during these conversations. I do my best to hide it when it's not going well. But that one went well. So shout out to David Moscrop, buy his book, Too Dumb for Democracy. And to all the people who said too dumber for democracy before me, go to hell. Um, don't like that. Uh, I think that's it. Subscribe to his Substack. Subscribe to my Substack. Thanks for following. Thanks for subscribing. Uh, I'm still riding the high from interviewing Brent Butt a couple weeks ago. That was fun too. If you haven't watched that one, go back and check that. I think that's the it. I think that's it. We'll see what happens next week. But for now, be well, be safe, and... Thanks for listening. Damn. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga, Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.